0: before we get started this evening let's have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone has the opportunity to make sure you are in fellowship and ready to focus on the word this evening then I will open in prayer let's pray father as we think about your grace we are astounded that you have provided so much for us and we deserve less than nothing, Yet you and your goodness and your love have provided everything for us. And Father, we are so grateful that we have the salvation that we have and that we have all of the many spiritual assets that you've given us and that we have your word and that we can be refreshed and encouraged and strengthened as we study your word and that we should be uh, known, should have a reputation as people who uh, study your word, know your word and apply your word in every way in our life. Father, we pray that you'd guide and direct us in our study this evening. We pray in Christ's name, Amen. Okay, I am going to give you a test. I decided today I'm going to give you a test. We've been, we've had sixty-five lessons in Acts. I hope you remember something. I'm going to ask you five questions. So, in just in your notes, just write down one, two, three, four, five. I'm not going to grade them. This is just sort of a self encouragement type of thing to see if you have learned anything or this late in the day, if you can even remember anything. Okay, so the first question is, who wrote the book of Acts? Don't answer it. I heard somebody back there, that's like, uh, was that, was it you, I think, I I, I mean, I I think there's a verse in the Bible somewhere that says women should keep silent in church. I don't know if that applies or not, but it was... Somebody back there. Okay. Uh, Who wrote the book of Acts? Who is the key person? We studied the first seven chapters. Who is the key person in the first seven chapters of Acts? Who is the key person in the first seven chapters of Acts? Who is the key person? Third question is what is is the key verse for the book of Acts? What is the key verse for the book of Acts? So who wrote it? Who's the key person between Acts one and Acts one and Acts eight? What is the key verse? What is the key verse? Where did all of these events happen? That's the fourth question. Where did all of these events happen? Where did all of these events happen? And then the um, let me see the fifth fifth verse fifth verse where how many how many, this, how many um, sermons are recorded in the first seven chapters of Acts that's, that's a little more technical for those who are looking for a little more trivia it's a little more detail how many how many sermons were recorded in the first seven chapters of Acts okay so, who wrote the book of Acts? Somebody tell me. Luke wrote the book of Acts. Who's a key person in Acts 1 through 7? Peter is a key person in Acts 1 through 7. Where did everything take place? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Uh, third. What was it, or I think that was the fourth one. The third one was, what's the key verse in Acts? Hmm? No. eight. That's right. Very good. Acts eight. And then the last one was how many how many sermons are recorded? Three. 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 There's the last one was Stevens. The first one was P- Peter on the day of Pentecost, and the second one is the day after they um, uh, heal the uh, the lame man that that morning after they heal the lame man. So those are the three that are given in in detail. But there are references that they had others. So that's good. That's good. Just to focus tonight, I, what I want to do tonight is review where we've been in Acts, so we can just kind of fit this, and I want to hit a couple of things as we go back, and just fit this into our mind, because we've covered basically the first section of of Acts, which is the first seven chapters. There's a shift that takes place going into chapter 8, so I want to review those first seven chapters, and then we'll do that in about the first, uh, in the next 20, 25 minutes, and then I want to give a flyover of the next uh, five chapters, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and twelve. And so we see that that's the second major division uh in the book. So we'll look look at the uh, review the first seven chapters and then look at the next five chapters. Okay, the key verse, as I pointed out, is the verse uh Acts one eight, but you shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witness, you, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and at all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That is the key verse. It gives us the basic outline for uh, the book of Acts, because it starts off in Jerusalem, where they are to wait, Jesus tells them they are to wait there in Jerusalem until uh, the Holy Spirit comes. Uh, who is the promise. He he assembles them in verse 4 and he says and commands them to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. And it's important to understand this. What is the promise of the Father? What was the promise? It's clearly articulated by John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, I came uh, to baptize in water, but he will come and baptize by the Spirit and by fire. And the promise is the coming of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus uh, clearly spelled that out in the, um, uh, part, in the upper room discourse in John chapter 14. And again, as he left and there on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane in John chapter 15 and John chapter 16, especially there's a lot of, uh, of introductory material on God, the Holy Spirit. So there is that promise. That is the promise that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. And this is what makes a difference between a church-age believer and a pre-church-age believer, either a Gentile or a Jew in the Old Testament. Nobody up to this point has had uh, the kind of relationship with God the Holy Spirit that comes into effect on that day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church and the fundamental ministry, foundational ministry is the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. That was what was predicted by John the Baptist in, and it's recorded in each of the Gospels and that is what is brought to fulfillment in, um, uh, in Acts chapter 2 because in Acts 1.5, after he says, what will come about is the promise of the Father, in verse 5 he says, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when Jesus uses a term, uses a phrase to uh, summarize what happens on the day of Pentecost, he doesn't say indwelling, he doesn't say filling, he says baptism. That is the foundational event this is what makes the difference between a church-age believer and a non-church-age believer. In the Old Testament, there was an endowment, we use that term, endowment, of the Holy Spirit, which refers to a temporary uh, giving of power for a specific purpose. The endowment of the Holy Spirit wasn't permanent, and it wasn't related to the spiritual life. It wasn't related to an individual's relationship to God. The Holy Spirit is given to key leaders and individuals, prophets in the writing of Scripture, uh, kings in leading Israel, the judges in leading Israel, uh, Holyab and Bezalel as they are uh, the, the lead craftsmen in overseeing the uh, production uh, Manufacture of everything for the uh, for the for the tabernacle, so that is all done under the power of the Holy Spirit. He comes upon people, but he doesn 't indwell them or fill them so uh, this is um, uh, not a spiritual life function. there were probably fewer than a hundred people who had any uh, Impact from God the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament it was, and that's over a period of, of um, four thousand years so this is this is limited in the church age, every believer is indwelt, filled by the Holy Spirit, every believer is baptized by the Holy Spirit, every believer is given a, a spiritual gift, every believer is sealed by the Spirit. all of those things are for every single believer, but when you get into the tribulation period in the future, none of that's going to be there. For uh, for the uh, believers, the saints, and the, uh, if it they was, they'd be the church. These are the things that distinguish church age believers from non church age believers. And at the end of the tribulation, there's going to be this giving of this, the establishment of the new covenant, when God the Holy Spirit is going to uh, indwell and fill in a different way every, uh, especially every Jew, Jewish believer. Uh, going into the millennial kingdom, so these are these are some of the distinctions. so Jesus says, "You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you it's, that coming upon them has already been specifically defined by him in acts one five as a baptism by the Holy Spirit. The result of this and all that is related to this. Is going to be that they will be witnesses, and he's speaking specifically to the uh, eleven apostles in front of him, but by inference to all church age believers. You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the remotest part of the earth. That's the outline of Acts. There in Jerusalem, in Acts one through seven, the focus is, shifts to Judea and Samaria in Acts 8 through 12, and then beyond to the uttermost part of the earth, and uh, Acts 13 to the end of the book. What the Holy Spirit brought new, first of all, was a new organism. This is a brand new organism. Nothing like this has, ha- has been in existence before. The word ekklesia is the Greek word for that translated church. It also meant assembly. In any kind of gathering of people, there was a word that was used, and that was... Ekklesia. I wonder if anybody here could guess at what the um, what the counterpart uh, to that word was that they used in uh, in Hebrew. Synagogue it meant assembly, and so you have the, this assembly uh, of people when you would go to Athens or you'd go to Sparta, and they would assemble the uh, the leadership group, whatever that was, that was called the ecclesia. So it doesn't have a necessarily technical Holy Spirit kind of meaning, but it is a word that is taken over at this point in, in the scripture and given a technical meaning. And it refers to those who are called, and we'll see that coming up in, in uh, the next section of Acts, called Christians, first used in Antioch of Syria. And then and what what unites this are these new ministries of the Holy Spirit, fundamentally the baptism by the Holy Spirit, which unites us in Christ. So what every person has in common that, has, that believes in Jesus Christ is at that instant God the Holy Spirit is used by Jesus Christ to identify them with his death, burial, and resurrection, and they are brought into the body of Christ. And at that same instant, simultaneously, they are—they become a new peop- part of a new people. They're part of a new family, the uh, the royal family of God. They're part of a new identity because they are now Christians, distinct from uh, the uh, Israel, the Jewish people, as a people of God. They have uh, new spiritual resources. They have a new spiritual destiny to rule and reign with uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are the recipients of new ministries of God the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And they're given a new objective, and that new objective is to be a witness throughout the world. That's a new objective. And so this is what the Holy Spirit brings in. Now, when we look at the organization of the book, uh, when I first started, I used this chart. I have modified the chart. This is what happens in any course of Bible study. If anybody is a student of the Word and growing, and they're, they do an overview study. They may come up with one uh, one organization or they may come up with sort of a tentative plan. And uh, as you get into the details, uh, it takes greater shape. You become more familiar with it. And I uh, have uh, modified this a little bit. The first chapter, I I now, the first section is chapter one, basically. This is the prelude. This is the setup to, to Acts. This is where you get the transition coming out of the life of Christ. And Jesus is now going to leave the earth in the ascension. And his physical body which has now been resurrected from the dead is going to be replaced by a new body, the church, and so there 's this replacement that takes takes in that comes into effect. Jesus ascends, and then ten days later there is a new body uh, uh, on the earth, so that the first chapter focuses on this promise of the Father, the promise of the holy spirit that 's the uh, prelude. The foundation for the rest of, uh, the rest of Acts. Uh, the first, uh, major section then goes from 2-1 to 760, which is their witness in Jerusalem. You see the division going across the top, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And then, to the ends of the earth, so in two one to seven sixty, we see the progress of the church the truly the birth and the progress of the church. the focus is on the Jews, the church is exclusively Jewish, Peter's the key leader, everything takes place in Jerusalem, and it covers a period of approximately two years and Then, when we get into the next section, uh, that begins not at uh, ignore those numbers at the top. The, the corrected numbers are. Uh, I'll correct those later. The, the corrected numbers are across the bottom here. This should be eight one. This goes eight one to twelve twenty five. In eight one, we see Saul breathing threats against the church, Saul of Tarsus, and we see him being deputized by the Sanhedrin to arrest and to persecute uh, the those who are followers of Jesus of Nazareth. As the Messiah. And so there is now this forced persecution specifically in Jerusalem which causes the Christians to go out. This is called motivational, wit- for, motivation for witnessing. You won't go out there and do it on your own. So we're going to turn the heat up a little bit, God says. And now you're going to be forced to leave. And everybody has to, all the Christians had to leave Jerusalem except for the apostles. They stayed, but all the other Christians are forced to flee this persecution, which forces them out into the surrounding territories, Samaria is to the north of Jerusalem, as we'll see in a map in a minute, and uh, Judea, which is to the south. And that becomes the the focal point of the next five chapters is how the gospel spread in Judea and and, uh, Samaria. And this, that covers a period of approximately 13 years. So the basic outline is here that uh, the first division, we're looking at God through the Holy Spirit authenticates and powers and directs the apostles' witness in Jerusalem. And then the next division, God expands the witness of the church into Judea and Samaria. Who's the prime, who is responsible for, uh, for the growth and expansion of the church? Who's responsible for the growth and expansion of the church? This is a simple question. A, is it the pastor? B, is it the church growth committee? C, is it uh, uh, the people in the church? No, it is God. Now, that doesn't mean that the pastor shouldn't be involved in some things, or the church, or anybody else, but they should be involved in in, in witnessing, which is the, the command, is to, to witness. But God's the one who... It establishes and builds the church. It is not based on getting the right methodology. The pressure today among pastors when you look down the street, up the street, around the corner, and and I have real questions about this. One day there's there's an empty field. The next year there is a church there that holds 5,000 people. Where did they get the money to do that? And this church wasn't in existence five or six years before. They may have been in some school somewhere or some temporary quarters, but they just explode on the scene and they're all following the same blueprint. And it is a methodological blueprint. And because they're successful, it said, this is what the Holy Spirit did. But... Anybody can follow a working business plan and produce a successful business, but that doesn't mean God is in it or God has anything to do with it. When you look at their doctrinal statement, if they have one, they usually don't, it's it's not biblical or it's got a lot of problems with it. They have a lot of fun, but it doesn't have anything to do with, with Scripture. The focal point of the growth is starts at the temple. I think that's fascinating. It didn't start in some other area in Israel. It starts, the the birth of the church occurs on the Temple Mount and explodes outward. So the, the Temple Mount is ground zero for the birth of the church. And it goes out from there. And in this map, we have, uh, this is uh, this, the uh, city of Jerusalem uh, it's oriented with north up. North. I, when I took uh, orienteering and map making and map reading in ROTC, we had uh, we all had to learn north is always up. See, officers are not always bright, so they have to memorize little sayings like that. North is always up. So north is up. East is to your right. West to the left. South is down. And this is the temple, uh, the Temple Mount itself, and um, this is where. The church began when the disciples received the Holy Spirit and then they head out to the Temple Mount and Peter begins to preach in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 2. And, and this first section of, uh, that should be one, I didn't get that changed. This should be 1 1 to 760 right there. I'll need to correct that typo. 1 1 to 760. That's where I changed, modified the outline. I got it straightened out down here, but not up here. God through the Holy Spirit authenticates, empowers, and directs the apostles' witness in Jerusalem. There are two basic things that happen. First of all, the Lord Jesus Christ promises the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter one. Promises the Holy Spirit. They're supposed to wait till the Holy Spirit comes. And so we have the focus on the promise and the ascension of the Lord and then the uh, selection of Matthias to replace Judas. We went through all of that. But just get that in your mind. In that first chapter, there's the promise, wait for the promise. Jesus leaves. Uh, While they're waiting for the promise, they chose Matthias. Then we get into uh, the second division, I got back from fishing this afternoon and rushed through this. That should be Acts two one through seven sixty on point B. Acts two one through seven sixty. Uh, the Lord gives birth to and the Holy Spirit expands the church in Jerusalem. The Lord gives birth to and the Holy Spirit expands the church in Jerusalem. It is the Holy Spirit who's the real you know, I said who's the main the main character, the main individual in the first six seven chapters of acts peter peter's the main human but many people have commented that the book title the acts of the apostles really should be changed to the acts of the holy spirit because that's what it is it is the work of the holy spirit in expanding uh expanding the church so in this section from one to 7.60, we have the coming of the Holy Spirit, the, ex- the expansion of the church as thousands upon thousands of Jew- Jewish saints trust Christ as Savior, and the church grows, and some people have who have studied this in detail have estimated that as many as uh, 20 to 30 percent of the Jews living in Israel in the first century trusted in Jesus and believed that Jesus was the Messiah. As many, Some think that it was as many as 30%. But it did not involve the leadership of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, even though there were a number of Sadducees, priests, and a number of Pharisees like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who <laughs> believed Jesus was the Messiah. It did not impact the leadership. They maintained their rejection And this is a major theme in these first uh, six chapters. What happens? Peter preaches on Acts 2. You don't see much of a response from the Sadducees uh, and Pharisees, except they come out because they're really interested to see what in the world is going on uh, with them. Uh, But they don't really do anything. Then the next day, what happens is, or a couple of days later... Peter and John come back, they heal the lame man, and they are uh, preaching in uh, Solomon's portico, which is this area uh, along here, out in the courtyard of the Gentiles, and they are preaching there the gospel. and then the sanhedrin sends the temple guard to arrest them. They bring them in, and what happens? They're told to stop there 's an escalation of opposition first they're told to stop, then they 're told to stop, and they are beaten uh, and then they are uh, they're, later they're arrested, and then uh, Stephen is going to be martyred so there 's an escalation of violence against them, an escalation of opposition as you read through the uh, seven seven chapters so Peter gives his first sermon, then the second sermon. Uh, Peter and John are arrested and warned in chapter 4. Uh, then Luke gives uh, more progress reports. Uh, we see some growing pains with Ananias and Sapphira, uh, growing pains in terms of their organization and the administration and distribution of money and aid to the uh, Hellenistic widows. Then uh, they are arrested. That's seen again in the middle of chapter uh chapter five they're arrested and they're beaten and then they're arrested again and released and arrested and beaten so um it is uh increasing opposition then in chapter six we see the selection of the seven to help with the administration and then chapter seven ends with uh and in the selection of the seven we're introduced to stephen and then uh the next part deals with Stephen and his witness. What, what are they supposed to do? What did Jesus say in Acts 1-8? You will be my witnesses. So the focus for Luke, as I pointed out the last time, we don't see Luke ever talk about how Philip or Stephen helped with the uh, administration of the uh, money to the widows. What we see is that they're fulfilling the mandate of Acts 1-8 to be a witness. Stephen is the witness in Acts 8, or excuse me, Acts 7, and then Philip is going to be a witness in Acts 8 as uh, the gospel goes out from Jerusalem to Judea uh, and Samaria. And as I pointed out going through this section, there are a number of uh, progress reports that are uh, given by Luke uh, to help us understand how rapidly uh, the church expanded. There are progress reports in the first chapter, Uh, progress reports of the response of the people to Peter's Peter's sermon, and we're told that uh, when he gives the command um, in Acts 2.38 to repent, which goes back to Deuteronomy, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus... Then there is a response, um, and he says to be saved from this perverse generation. And those who gladly received the word were baptized that day. About three thousand souls were added uh, to them, and uh, they continued steadfastly. Acts two forty two in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers and fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And then we see in verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And that really shows the Jewish thinking that's in this early church because they're not thinking of themselves as uh, as a bunch of individuals, as I pointed out Sunday morning. They think of themselves as a collective group. And they are group-oriented and team-oriented. They're not uh focused on uh, just how each individual player is being taken care of. So you see that, that, that uh, Old Testament background and that Jewish background affecting their thinking where they come together as a team. So that last part of Acts 2 from verse 40 down through uh, 40, 47 gives us that progress report. Then we have the second uh, sermon from, from Peter in uh, Acts chapter 3. And again, we're given a progress report uh, in terms of the the response. And we're told that about 4,000 men, or 5,000 men, responded um, in Acts 4.4. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So we have 3,000 total on the day of Pentecost. Here you have 5,000 men. So that would have been 5,000 men plus plus. Women and children, young people, so that could have been as many as fifteen or twenty thousand so and in between the two events, there were many others who who became believers. so in just a matter of a few weeks, as I pointed out, there's been this uh, huge explosion uh, in the uh, in the early church. This has really gotten the attention of the uh, Sadducees. They ratchet up their opposition and uh, warnings, and then this uh, goes forward in acts. Um, 432 to 516 we basically have an extended progress report and that focuses again on how God the Holy Spirit is working behind the scenes God the Holy Spirit is mentioned but that's the thrust of the whole book is how God the Holy Spirit is working through the apostles as they are obedient to the their uh, prime directive so to speak which is to be a uh, to be a witness, then we see the, um, uh, as I talked about already, the expansion problems with Ananias and Sapphira, and the administration of the uh, aid to the to the widows. Then we come to Acts chapter uh, seven, which we looked at the last couple of lessons, and Stephen's witness, and really he is indicting the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leadership for their failure to accept Jesus as the Messiah and that this is a sign of a consistent failure as they rejected God and went into idolatry in the Old Testament. They rejected Moses and his commands, even while Moses is up on Mount Sinai. uh, They're down there telling Aaron to build uh, a golden calf for them to worship. Uh, They consistently defiled the temple And he's answering all of their accusations that he has blasphemed God and Moses and the Torah and the temple. And he shows that, no, indeed, it's been the the Jewish leadership consistently, the people, not necessarily in many cases. In other cases, yes. But uh, especially in this generation, it's the leadership that was guilty, though there were a lot of individuals uh, that responded. And in the middle of that section, there was an interesting progress report that uh, in Acts 6, verse 7, then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So that shows that from the ranks of the priesthood impressed with the lives and the teaching of the apostles studying Torah to see that Jesus indeed fit the pattern of the prophecies of the Messiah, you had hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of priests who became uh, believers in Jesus as the Messiah. Now that is what we've covered uh, so far in the first part of Acts. And you get into the second division, which goes from 8.1 to 12.25. There are six divisions. I've got uh, three on this page, and uh, I'll add three more on the next slide. And this covers God's work in in expanding uh, the church into Judea and Samaria. And the first eight verses focus us on how God allows persecution to drive the church out of Jerusalem. Now this is really an important point. So often you and I look at negative events in our life and, and we think, how can God let this happen? And rather than looking at a negative event and say, you know, God's allowed this to happen because he's moving me, pushing me in a certain direction. He is going to open up other avenues, other directions in my life that I didn't expect or anticipate, uh, whatever it may be. We tend to look at the negative and say, uh-oh, there's going to be change. This can't be good. And uh, God is really saying, you're really not quite... Um, fulfilling your, your ministry at this point, I need to rattle your cage a little bit and get you pointed in the right direction so that um, you'll get out of your comfort zone and grow spiritually and fulfill uh, the plan that I have for you. So God allows this persecution to develop for probably a number of reasons since God is the original multitasker and he's allowing this to come in order to move them out But it has an individual impact because they're also having to trust God because when when you look around at the people who are persecuting you, some of them were their uh, friends and neighbors and relatives who had not accepted Jesus as a Messiah. And so they have to make a decision whether or not they're going to uh, faithfully follow Jesus even though it will cost them lifelong friendships, and relationships with loved, loved ones and members of their own family. And so we see that the, now the geography comes, uh, <clears throat> comes into place, and over the next five chapters we're going to see a lot of geographical change. It starts off in Jerusalem with the persecution, the first three verses here, and then it shifts to Samaria. And this is, what did Jesus say? You're going to go to Judea and Samaria. So the pressure comes in, in Jerusalem, and they are forced out. And so there is a focus on the expansion of the church into Samaria in verses 4 through 25. And the key person here is going to be Philip. So it's been Peter, 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 and Now then Stephen, and then Philip and Philip is the uh, point person here, the one that God the Holy Spirit is emphasizing, and he's going to have uh, a key role to play in the expansion first to Samaria, and then he's going to be uh, <clears throat> lifted and moved by God the Holy Spirit down to um, uh, south by, by the, on the road to Gaza, same Gaza we hear about in the news every day, and there he is going to uh, meet these, this Ethiopian servant of Queen Candace of, uh, of Ethiopia who's riding home in his chariot. He is Now, he's a proselyte. That means he has, uh, he's a Gentile. That's interesting. We usually don't think of the first expansion of the church to the Gentiles until Peter goes to Cornelius in Acts 10. But this Ethiopian eunuch is what? He's a Gentile. But he is a proselyte. He has be- become Jewish, and he's very interested, and he is reading through uh, Isaiah. He's reading the uh, Tanakh as he's on his way down uh, back home. And so Philip is brought there by God the Holy Spirit, and Philip says, well, uh, who are you? So this is going to be an expansion uh, down in Judea. And then he will come back up to Caesarea, which is uh, kind of on the border there between uh, Judea and Samaria right on the coast. Some of you have been there with me. It's a very beautiful site, architecturally uh, uh, fabulous at that time. Because it was uh, another one of those architectural um, uh, a- acts of grandeur that uh, Herod the Great was known for. And it was a site of uh, many events that occur in the book of Acts, especially towards the end of the book of Acts. Uh, uh, Paul will be brought here and uh, held under arrest for a while. Then the scene will shift from Judea, Samaria and Judea, to Damascus in chapter 9, where the apostle Paul has been headed, and then he is saved on the road to Damascus. So the uh, ninth chapter focuses on Saul uh, of Tarsus in Damascus. And then in 926 to 31, we're back in Jerusalem. And then the scene shifts to Lydda, which is just outside of uh, of, uh, of Joppa and another small community, Sharon, uh, in 932 and 33. And then to Joppa, which is really kind of a suburb of, of what is now modern Tel Aviv, right on the coast there. It's the same port from which... Um, Jonah fled as he was fleeing the will, uh, the, the word of God. And this is where uh, Peter has now taken up uh, residence, spending some time staying at the home of Simon the Tanner. And so Joppa becomes the next scene. And then it is while he's at Joppa that God appears in a dream to, to uh, uh, Peter and tells him that he is he's going to be asked to go and take the gospel to Gentiles. And he has this vision of a tablecloth coming down with all of these unclean foods on it, and God says, take and eat, take and eat, take and eat. And uh, Peter's slow to get the message. There's a knock on the door, and it's some uh, men who've been sent down uh, to get Peter by this uh, Roman centurion named Cornelius, who's classified not as a proselyte, but as a God-fearer. That's sort of the first step on the way to becoming a proselyte. So he's uh, very interested, and so Peter goes to them Preaches the gospel, they're saved. The same kinds of things happen to them that happened on the day of Pentecost. There's the Holy Spirit comes, uh, they're baptized by the Holy Spirit, and there's uh, we'll make some uh, interesting uh, analysis of these different quote Pentecosts. One on the day of Pentecost, one in chapter eight with the Samaritans uh, when John and Peter come, and then there'll be another one with the Gentiles. Then the scene shifts up north. Now we're out of Jerusalem and Israel to Antioch of Syria. So this shows the expansion. We're we're beginning to lay the groundwork for the last part of the book. We go up to Antioch of Syria to see the new uh, church that's been established there, then back to Jerusalem, and then the section ends with them back in Antioch. So there's a lot of movement uh, around, and so we'll be looking at maps to make sure we... We see all of this, but this is the uh, the geography. So uh, the first thing that we see in this section is the persecution to drive the believers out of Jerusalem. The second thing that we'll see is that God sends Philip to the Samaritans and he goes to the city of Samaria and demonstrates the unity of these new believers in Samaria with the work in Jerusalem by having a follow-up action by the two key apostles, Peter and John, and it is at, under their uh, hand and leadership that they the Holy Spirit comes upon uh, these new believers. It's interesting that when Philip goes, they trust in Jesus as Messiah, but nothing happens. There's no baptism of the Holy Spirit, no indwelling. Uh, they don't speak in tongues. Nothing happens. Then Peter and John come, and Peter is the one who... Uh, prays for them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. In verse 46, we read, For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. Now notice these different words, come upon, fallen upon. These are all uh, more general terms for what Jesus initially said would be the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And so we're told, Luke tells us, For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, They had only been baptized, water baptism, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid laid hands on them. Peter and John laid hands on these new Samaritan believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. That is when they are brought into the the organism of the church. Now, why does that happen? Because the Jews hated the Samaritans. They they just despised the Samaritans. They didn't want to have anything to do with them. They were just, you know, on the good days they weren't the enemy, and on the bad days they were the enemy. And they just they just hated them. They were kind of a mixed breed of people who had been resettled there from the time of the Babylonian Assyrian and Babylonian Empire, and the, the Jews so hated the Samaritans that instead of walking straight from Uh, Jerusalem to Nazareth, they would cross over to the east side of the Jordan River and go up through the area that was known as Perea and then cross back over when they got up to the Sea of Galilee so they wouldn't have to, wouldn't even have to set foot on the soil of Samaria. They hated them. They despised them. You cannot imagine how much, uh, they, they, just it was so obnoxious to them to have anything to do with the Samaritan. And so it would be really simple to see uh, a division in the early church occur between Jew- Jewish Christians and Samaritan Christians if Philip had gone up there, preached the gospel, they had received the Holy Spirit, and all of that had happened independently of Peter and John. But when nothing happens, they're not brought into the church until Peter is there this shows and establishes the unity of the body of Christ at the very beginning there aren't going to be uh, ethnic distinctions in the body of Christ god establishes uh <clears throat> that from the very beginning and so we see the role of peter uh peter and john there in uh, in that section and then as soon as that is over with and i'm uh there's also the little episode with uh Simon the sorcerer, he's known through history, or Simon Magus uh, from the word for magic, a magician. And uh, this is a great little episode because he's actually saved. And probably 90% of the uh, people you hear teach on this will say, no, he wasn't. But if you read in um, verse 13, it says, And Simon himself also believed. And he was bapt- uh, when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, if he's not saved, then that terminology, which is simply he believed, which is the same terminology you have everywhere else for somebody who becomes a Christian, if that doesn't mean he actually, literally, truly became a Christian, then it's a meaningless phrase, and none of us knows whether or not we're saved. So he's saved, he just he just screwed up in the head like most people are. After you're saved doesn't mean suddenly your thinking's straightened out. doesn't mean suddenly your life is straightened out. It just means that now you have a different destiny than you had before and you have the potential to straighten out your muddled thinking and your confused life. But Peter, uh, or rather uh, um, Simon, hasn't gotten straightened out yet and he's still operating like he always did, thinking, wow, how can I make some money off of this? He hasn't changed at all, other than he is now saved. But you have to have some teaching before you're going to change. And he hasn't had any teaching yet, hasn't had the opportunity. So he's saved. We'll talk about him in the gospel a little bit. And then uh, at the conclusion of this section, verse 25, we read, So when they had testified and preached the word of God, that's talking about John and, and uh, Peter. When they had testified and preached the word of God, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So we, we see that expansion that takes place. And then uh, Philip is uh, taken by an angel of the Lord to, uh, down to meet this Ethiopian, and he goes down, meets the Ethiopian on the road to, um, on his way home, and gives him the gospel. The Ethiopian is reading from Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, and Philip says, well, what do you think that means? That's always a good approach uh, in witnessing. And he said, I don't have a clue. So Philip then explained, and beginning uh, at this scripture, preached, or literally in in the Greek here, it's not preached, it's not uh, keruso, it is, evangelizo. It is he gave the gospel, explained the gospel uh, of Jesus to him. And then in verse 36, the the eunuch immediately said, well, there's some water. Let's get baptized right now. And Philip said, okay, let's do that. Verse 37 uh, is not in the original. It's not in the, uh, uh, it's in the textus receptus only. We'll talk about the problem there it's in, only in the Texas Receptus. It's not in the majority text. It's not in uh, the critical text. It's not in most manuscripts, the majority of manuscripts, and it's not in the oldest manuscripts. There is very little evidence that verse 37 was there. If you believe with all your heart. That, that doesn't fit with anything else in scriptures. N- nothing else says that. It doesn't say, if you believe like a mustard seed, is what Jesus said. Not, he, Jesus didn't say, if you believe with all your heart, how much is enough? Maybe last year I didn't have as big a heart as I do this year. So that, that verse is not consistent with anything else, and it's not in the majority of the manuscripts or the oldest ma- ma- uh, manuscripts. So... Um, Philip then baptizes him, and when they came up out of the water in verse 38, the spirit of the Lord then caught Philip away, and he is transported instantly up into uh, the uh, northwest part of, uh, of, of Judea. I'm not sure if that it's right on the border between Judea, Judea uh, and Samaria, right in the area known as the Shaphela, which is the uh, coastal plain. Of Israel, that's the area where Azotus is, and he goes through this area preaching in all the cities until he came to Samaria, and then we stop the action there. He's in he's in uh, I'm, excuse me until he came to Caesarea, and he's preaching in all the cities. But the word that we keep seeing translated "preached" in the New King James is "evangelizo." It is proclaiming the gospel. It is giving the good news. So this is what he is doing. He is evangelizing in all the cities until he came to Caesarea. And we stop at Caesarea, and then we shift, scene shift, to Saul. In chapter 9, the focus is on Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul. Uh, He's uh, out there carrying out his uh, uh, mission uh, as, as he's been commissioned by the Sanhedrin to arrest and to persecute these new Christians. And he's got a letter of authentication, letter of authority uh, from the Sanhedrin to the synagogues in Damascus now up in Syria uh, so that we're told in verse 2, if he found any who were of the way, that's what they were calling the Christians at that point, uh, of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he is definitely persecuting them. He's going to go up there and arrest them. He is on a terrorist mission against the church. And uh, while he is on the way, the Lord Jesus Christ appears to him and challenges him. And this is the point of Saul of Tarsus' conversion. It is not an interior event. He's not having a, a hallucination because the men with him hear, see a light, and hear the sound of the voice. They don't see Jesus specifically, and they don't hear the words because they're not meant for them. But the fact that they see the light and they hear Jesus speaking, even though they can't distinguish the words, shows that it is an external event and it is an objective event, not a subjective psychological event motivated by Paul's guilt over killing all these Christians, which is what I had a Western civilization professor in college try to tell me. See, they only halfway read the text. And so Saul then is told by the Lord he's blinded from this vision. He goes to Damascus. He has three days to sit and think and to just reorient his thinking and to be quiet. And then the Lord commissions a man, another believer, a disciple named Ananias, to go to find Paul and to heal him of his blindness. And so we'll go through that healing, and then Saul stays for a while In Damascus, but he's pretty smart, and he's already rethought a lot of his Old Testament theology, and figured out that Jesus is is definitely the Messiah. And he starts going out and engaging people and witnessing to them. Uh, In verse twenty, immediately he preached, and again it's evangelizo. He uh, evangelized, um, preaching or proclaiming uh, the Messiah in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. And all who heard were amazed. They said, he just doesn't fit the reputation that we have heard, what has happened. And he is arguing effectively that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. And he so angered the leadership in the synagogues that they conspired together to kill him. And so he had to escape in the night. And uh, they uh, let him down over the wall in a large basket. Then he heads to Jerusalem. So the, the scene shifts to Jerusalem, and he goes down there, but everybody down there is pretty suspicious of him, and they won't, won't, don't want to talk to him or have anything to do with him. They think this is some sort of a ruse, except for Barnabas. Now, we were introduced to Barnabas back with the Ananias and Sapphira event, and this guy was called Barnabas because he is the son of encouragement. He's the son of encouragement. So he's the guy who looks out there and sees the person nobody else wants to talk to, but he sees their potential. Barnabas is the man behind the scenes. You know, so everybody says, look at the Apostle Paul. Wasn't he great? Yeah, but it was, it was Barnabas who brought him out of his obscurity. And I remember Jim Myers always says, one of the greatest people in the 19th century was some guy you never heard of. and He mentions a name. So why was he great? He led Dwight Moody to the Lord. See, you never know who who you're going to lead to the Lord and what they're going to do. You may think, well, I'm just a nobody. Well, maybe you're a Barnabas. So Barnabas is the one that comes along and he says, we can trust, uh, we can trust Paul, and he uh, is the one who brings him in, into the fold. And then we're told that the church continued uh, to to grow. uh, But there was a lot of things that were upset because of Paul, and then he's finally sent away, and he goes back home to to Tarsus for about 12 or 13, 14 years, and then we're told after he leaves that all the churches throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified the juxtaposition with Saul leaving is one thing that I take as amusing. The point is we started in one with persecution, and by the end of 9 here, now there's going to be peace in all these churches. The persecution has ended. That's really the point in that verse. And then the shift comes back to Peter. So it's been Philip, and then Saul, and now we're back to Peter. See, there's a transition away from focusing on on Peter. So we see uh, Peter's ministry to Aeneas, uh, who is healed uh, from his uh, paralysis, and then he is going to raise a young woman uh, from the dead in verses 36 to to 43. And as a result of these miracles uh, performed by uh, Peter, uh, we're told in Acts 9.42, it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa. So we've gone from Jerusalem to Joppa, which is on the coast, and there is where he receives the, the messengers from Cornelius. And chapter 10 and chapter the first half of chapter 11 are all about this inclusion of the Gentiles, and there's a different order of events that occurs uh, when they come. The Samaritans didn't speak in tongues, but the Gentiles do. And there's a different, as I said, a different order of events that we'll need to look at. And then we move to the uh, last part, which is point uh, E up here, focusing on Barnabas and Paul in Antioch. This is 1119 to 1130. So we go from Jerusalem to Joppa and then up to Antioch and uh, Barnabas decides it's time to go pull uh, Paul out of, a, out of Saul out of obscurity. Now a number of years have gone by in this transition, and now at this point about 13 years has transpired. And Barnabas goes to get uh, Saul and brings him to Antioch, and he becomes a key leader and uh, preacher evangelist in the church in Antioch and we're told in acts 11:21 uh, the hand of the lord was with them and a great number believed and turned to the lord and so they uh, the news of these things came to the ears of the church in jerusalem they sent out barnabas to go as far as antioch and and it is at this point that he goes to get saul to bring him to antioch to be a part of the development of that church in antioch this is the spring of of uh, uh spring of 44 so this is um, um, nine years after the outbreak of the persecution. And so they're going to be there for about four years before uh, they go out on the first missionary journey. During that time, they're going to participate. The church in Antioch is going to participate in sending money down to Jerusalem because there's a tremendous famine that occurs, and so they're able to help uh, the believers down in down in Jerusalem. Then the scene shifts in chapter twelve back to Jerusalem. Uh, there's uh, persecution arises again in the church. Herod decides this is Herod the Tetrarch. That means he's the king of a fourth of the kingdom that Herod uh, the Great had, and uh, he has James the brother of John uh, executed. So this is the first. Martyr among the original apostles. And it, um, then he, he was so, it made the Jews so happy that he seized Peter, and it's during the days of unleavened bread. So we see another echo of what had happened with Jesus. Now, Stephen's martyrdom was an echo of what had happened with Jesus. And the point of all this is to show that that the leadership doesn't repent. What was Peter's message in Acts 2? Repent. There's no repentance. There's a hardening of their heart. And, it, and you have to watch that develop thematically all the way to the end when there's a riot and they try to kill Paul. And this is just designed to show that the leadership of the Jews in, in, in Israel gets more hostile Uh, to the church. They're hardened in their opposition uh, to the gospel, though there are thousands and thousands of Jews that believed in Jesus as the Messiah. And so we come to chapter 12. Herod is filled with arrogance. Uh, The people are chanting that he is like a God, and of course the Holy Spirit's not going to uh, put up with any competition, and we're told that as the people were chanting that he had the voice of a God, and not of a man that an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. And this is historically uh, verified, but the word of God grew and multiplied. So we continue to see the church grow, the church expand, but they didn't have any idea what the purpose-driven church was. They just knew about the word of God-driven church and the Holy Spirit-driven church. So that's our overview. We see the continued expansion of the church under the direction of God, the Holy Spirit. And I've got a couple of maps here. Here's Judea and Samaria. Here's Jerusalem right here. Uh, This is Joppa up here. uh, So Joppa would be part of Samaria. And Caesarea is all the way up here to the north. Actually, that takes about less than an hour to drive from Joppa to Caesarea, just so you get an idea of that distance. It's uh, about f- less than 45 minutes, uh, and that includes rush hour. So it's, that's really uh, very close. It's only about probably uh, 30 miles or so. Uh, this is uh, Samaria, so, and Damascus is off the map right about where, just north of where that pointer is. So that gives you the idea of the general uh, area. Here's uh, Down here in this area is where uh, Philip met the Ethiopian eunuch. Here's Gaza somewhere down in this area. Uh, Here's Azotus here, and then he uh, walked on back up towards uh, Joppa. Lydda located over here where Peter healed uh, Aeneas. So all of this is happening in Samaria and Judea in the second uh, part of the book. So we'll come back next time and start working our way through Acts chapter 8. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be encouraged by the fact that it is not up to us. It is our responsibility to uh, be witnesses, to be faithful to your word, to obey your word, to study your word, to apply it in our lives. And you are the one who grows, builds, and expands the church. And uh, too often we get that reversed. The role of the pastor is to feed the church, And your role is to grow the church, not the other way around. Father, we thank you for the way you work so much in this congregation and through this congregation. And we pray that you would just continue to uh, give us those opportunities to be a faithful witness to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.